Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. My new book, Diary of a Psychosis, is out. It's the most lively, devastating baseball bat to the throat takedown of what the public health establishment did in 2020 and beyond that you can imagine. It's my first book in nine years, and you're going to love it. Check it out at diaryofcovid.com. And if you've already bought it, make sure also to visit diaryofcovid.com so you can claim your free bonuses, including my free companion volume, Collateral Damage, a collection of stories from real people who suffered under the restrictions. They weren't allowed to tell their stories at the time, but every one of them told me, we just want to be heard. Check it all out at diaryofcovid.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Tom Woods Show. This is episode 2454 with Jennifer Lal, who is, I feel like I don't know how to do her justice in that she has a very interesting documentary that I want to talk about. But just last week, she's had a book published. And I, I know what it's like as somebody who's just had a book published. You go on a podcast, you want to talk about that. So perhaps we'll do both. The book is called The Detransition Diaries. And of course, I'll link to that in the description of the video and on the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 2454. But we also want to talk about this excellent documentary that you can watch for free called The Lost Boys. And it's likewise about this topic of gender theory and people who are actually the, let's say, as one of them put it, actually, the collateral damage. I thought that was a very interesting turn of phrase of that movement. And she's an author. She directs the Center for Bioethics and Culture. She does an awful lot. And apparently, judging from the background of her video, she also plays guitar. So welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Tom. I can't believe our paths haven't crossed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We have an awful lot in common. Well, okay. So first of all, I watched your documentary just last night. And I have so much to say about it and questions. And it's extremely compelling. You're absolutely drawn into the lives of these people. And it's done in a non-sledgehammer way. You get the sense that these are several people who are just being sincere without an ideological axe to grind. They're just telling you their own personal stories. But speaking of personal stories, can you start off by maybe filling in the blanks in your own background such that you would come to write a book like this and be involved in a documentary project like this? I'll try to give you the abbreviated version. I was a pediatric critical care nurse for many, many, many years. And I went back to pursue a master's degree in bioethics because I was really concerned with where medicine was going. And it wasn't a good way. We could all probably imagine different areas where we think about medicine going bad. And The Lost Boys is my 12th, 11th documentary film. And I have done a lot of documentary filmmaking in the space of assisted reproductive technology. I've made two films on women who sold their eggs or egg donors. I've made two films on women who were surrogate mothers, you know, rented their wombs. And then when, as a P ex pediatric critical care nurse, when I found out in the trans movement that children before their puberty is blocked or they're put on cross-sex hormones, they're offered fertility preservation. Because we know that this gender therapy, and I use the word therapy in quotes, ruins, destroys our fertility. So they're offering to little boys and little girls, would you like to freeze and bank your egg and sperm? So once we ruin your fertility, you can maybe, when you grow up, have your own biological children. 
So that's how I got here today from a nurse to a founder of a nonprofit to a filmmaker and to now writing books. Well, tremendous. I mean, I, as I said, I have not read the book. I wasn't aware of it until you just told me about it. But I did watch the documentary. So first of all, how did you go about finding people who went through the quote-unquote gender transition process and then detransition? And by the way, in parentheses, one such person in the film says, I don't even like this language because it implies that I actually made the transition from man to woman. I, I never left, he says. I never left. But we know what's meant by these terms. Yeah. How did you find these people who were willing to tell you their stories? The same way you found me, the internet, the social oh. media world. So this is my third film in the trans transgender space. The first film we made a few years ago during the COVID pandemic was called Transmission, What's the Rush to Reassign Gender? Again, back to pediatric nurses. Why are we rushing these children to do something dangerous and harmful and irreversible? Then we made the Deep Transition Diaries, which was focused only on young women. And then now The Lost Boys, which is focused on men. So I have been watching these people, these people who thought they could convert themselves to the other sex for a long time. And I just reached out to ones that I thought had compelling stories that seemed to be brave enough. I mean, if you're on social media talking about this, you're going to be more inclined to want to sit down and go on camera and do an interview. You know, I show everybody our previous films so they know that one, we're on their side, we're an ally. We're not somebody that's going to use their story at 10 minutes and then 50 minutes of pylon. And people, I think, see our previous work and trust us as filmmakers. So that's how we select them. It's interesting to see what they have in common. And certainly one of the things they have in common is they say that for one reason or another, they were mocked growing up because they didn't fit the traditional masculine feminine categories. And in, in this day and age, we know what that now means. If you don't fit into one of those categories, if you're a boy, but you're interested in the arts or you're interested in ballet, then you're probably a woman. So we need to officially make you into a woman. And so because of all this and because of the ubiquity of the trans propaganda, they came to the conclusion that maybe the best resolution to all this is simply to go along. Yeah. And, you know, when previous film was focused only on young girls. This film is focused only on young men. You know, there's a lot of similarities in the messages that young people, you know, hear today. You know, young girls, if they're tomboys, can't just be girls that like to climb trees and play with trucks and get dirty. So pornography is a theme in the film. And that's, a, you know, unfortunately, young girls are stumbling onto pornography as well. But the boys, they get these messages about what it means to be a man. One of the young men in the film says he realized he was one of the problems. You know, men are told you're misogynist, you're part of the patriarchy, you're wanting to put women down, you're violent, you're you know, rapist. So the you know, young boys get so many messages. And I thought it was really compelling when one young boy, he was just trying to be helpful and he, and he was helping his mother carry her purse because her hands were full. And he was mocked by family members and made fun of because boys don't carry purses. Well, he wasn't carrying a purse. He was helping his mother. And we should be applauding and praising our young children when they're helpful and they're kind and they see something in need <laughs> and not thinking, I can't help because I'm a boy and I would never put pick up my mother's purse. Well, the thing that I think was the most shocking to me, even though deep down I probably knew that it was the case, was the pressure, the rush 
on the part of quote unquote therapists or gender therapists. I mean, that the idea of a gender therapist, I would you'd want to run as far away as possible from such a person. But the pressure they were under that almost immediately the question came up, do you want to transition? And then they were hounded by it. And after just a, a handful of sessions, they would be, it, even one of them was struggling with substance abuse. You might think you would conquer that before you ask about absolutely life-changing, quote-unquote, treatments. But instead, it was a rush to do this, even though I know that in public, if you confront such people about this, they'll say, oh, candidates for these treatments have to go through a, a long vetting process. And I always had a feeling that that was just for public consumption, that in fact, there is an absolute obsession with railroading people into this process. Is that your impression? Yeah, I mean, they recount, oftentimes these are like Zoom or phone meetings. So you're literally being prescribed medication that you have no business taking by somebody who's never even physically seen you, has it, doesn't know anything about your medical history. You know, when you sit down with your trusted family physician, you know, this is somebody who's known you for years and they, they know all about you. These people get on a phone call or on a Zoom meeting and within 15 minutes are off to CVS as a young man getting a prescription for high-dose estrogen. And yeah, Brian in the film was the one who had a severe drug and alcohol addiction problem. And he said any good therapist would have said, you know, let's deal with your addiction, get you sober, and then we can sort out these other feelings that you're having about your confusion about being a woman. So it's, you know, as a recovering healthcare provider, it grieves me that this is seen as medicine. And in the book, The Detransition Diaries, because you can't do a lot of deep dive in filmmaking, and you know, audience wants short content. You know, our film is 48 minutes, and even that's pushing it. <laughs> but in the book, we were actually able to do a deep dive in, in what was going on with gender ideology and how did we get to be blurring the sexes and this word queer is a, is a modern day notion. And what does all that mean? And, and what happened to medicine to bring us to a point where this is seen as proper treatment of people that clearly have overwhelmingly a lot of mental health issues, depression, trauma, autism, OCD. Well, I think there is room now. This could just be my ignorance talking. Maybe there is such a documentary, but it certainly seems to me that there is room somewhere for a documentary about the capture of the professional associations by this ideology, because the other side of this debate can legitimately say, well, the professional associations say this is an appropriate treatment and that it, it prevents young people from committing suicide and, and it would be inhumane for us not to do it. So it's left people like, I don't know if you know Dr. Miriam Grossman, but she has a book called Lost in Transnation, which I think is an unbelievably brilliant title. I've had her on to ask her exactly that. Now you're on the defensive, and you have to explain why your own association thinks you're a weird dissenter, and it's pushing an ideology that even 10 years ago, everyone would have agreed was nuts. Yeah, I do know Miriam Grossman, and she actually endorsed the film, The Lost Boy. She's one of our endorsements that we put out on the press release. You know, when you look at what's happened, medicine today is governed by their professional societies. We have the American Academy of Pediatrics. We have the American Pediatric Endocrine Society. And those are really small, powerful people that have been captured. And so from the top down, they are given the directives to 
pediatrician in the United States or endocrinologist in the United States, that this is now the standard of care. This is how we're going to treat these children. And most physicians today are busy running their day-to-day practices. They don't have time to read studies and get, you know, do deep dives into all this debate around it. And so they follow the standards of care, one, out of just ignorance, and two, is they don't want to get sued. Because if you, know, if you are in a courtroom and they can make a case that you are not following your professional society's guidelines and how to handle a certain type of patient, then you can be sued for not practicing medicine in accord with your professional body. So this small group, I mean, I think it's, you know, we're talking like a couple of dozen people that are at the head of these societies that are making these kind of decisions for thousands and thousands and thousands of physicians. Now that gives no excuse for them because in my mind, physicians have sworn the Hippocratic oath to do no harm. And any physician who's worth their salt should be able to know if I put massive amounts of estrogen in a male body, this is going to cause problems short and long term. And if I do the surgical interventions, then we're really opening up a whole nother can of worms when you start amputating or removing normal parts of our bodies. I'll try to be polite in terms here. Well, of course, it is no excuse for the doctors. But unfortunately, right now in our culture, people equate the science, which is just those two words together. There's something so creepy about them. They think the science is a group of people, a group of alleged experts who have been trotted out by the official authorities as the people we should listen to. And whatever they say, that's the science because they have prestigious credentials and they're the head of some association, whereas you are some dissenter (laughs) who is an opponent of science. And so you, you can't even have a conversation like this. And they say the science, and then they say the science is settled. Yeah, sure. And then a study comes out, and then the science has to resettle because we have new information. So how many times have we heard that the science has been settled when, in fact, it hasn't been settled at all? That's just a typical hubris we all have to be have our radars up for. I don't think that this is settled. But, yeah, but I am always hopeful, and I hope people, I do hope people watch the film. We made it free so people can watch the film. Yeah. But, you know, all of our films try to end hopeful. Here are these people on camera that have done horrible things to their body that will have lifelong complications to them, but it hasn't destroyed them. No. Yeah. In fact, at the end, I obviously felt very bad for what had happened to them and what they had gone through. But it seems like they've got themselves put together and they're going places. And that was a nice note at the end. Everybody, quick message on behalf of our outstanding sponsor, Monetary Metal. So we all know, everybody listening to this show knows there's something seriously wrong with the monetary system, and we all know it spells trouble at one point or another in the future, and we all know that it's a good idea to hold some gold. But you can do better than just holding some gold. You can make that gold earn more gold for you. And that's what I've been doing with my own account at Monetary Metals. Who cares what the Federal Reserve is doing with interest rates when you can earn interest on your gold paid in gold? You can earn up to 5% in their gold leasing program or earn double-digit returns in their gold bonds if you're an accredited investor. I've put my money, my gold, where my mouth is and opened an account with them myself, and I love it. It's time for you to do the same. Join me and our friend Jeff Deist as we lead an honest money revolution that starts by opening an account at Monetary Metals today. 
You were smart enough to buy gold. Now be smart enough to increase that gold. Go to monetary-metals.com slash woods to learn more. That's monetary-metals.com slash woods. As I say, I find it demoralizing. I, I don't think it's absolutely insurmountable, the obstacles we face, but demoralizing how quickly these ideas went from ideas nobody had ever heard of. I mean, not even that we had listened to them and rejected them. No one had ever heard of them. They went from that to being, I wouldn't say widely accepted among the general population. The general population has been beaten down into grudgingly going along and keeping their mouths shut. But the point is they somehow grabbed the attention of all elites across society to the point where this is going to be pushed on everybody's children. I mean, whatever playbook they used, I want to find that playbook and try and see if my own ideas can spread like that. Yeah, they quickly got into the academic environments. That's where all this thinking of blurring the sexes, you know, some of it started with just feminism. You know, men are just like women. Women are the same. We're all equal. We can do all the same jobs. When in fact, no, we are different. And the whole idea, you know, it used to be women's studies and women's studies moved to gender studies. And now gender studies is queer studies. It happened in law. You know, all the social justice warriors came out. And, you know, what are we going to do in law to change law so that everybody's equal and everybody's protected and everybody's rights? And here we are in a situation where only certain types of people's rights are protected. And if we speak out, especially parents, you're, you're going to lose your children. You're going to have CPS knocking on your door going, what do you mean you're not affirming your child? In my state, I live in California, we have a custody battle here with a man who has not been able to see his son for years because he will not call his son his daughter. He will yeah. not affirm that transition. So he's lost custody. So we've lost it in laws. We've lost it in, in medicine. We've lost it in popular culture. When we know the studies show that most people aren't buying this, but we keep our mouths shut or we're called a transphobe or we'll get canceled or we'll lose our job. Or I wonder, though, it does seem like, and I hate to sound like an old fogey, this was bound to happen as I got older, but the younger people, you know, the kids, they're surrounded by it. And a lot of them seem to have absorbed it because they haven't been around enough to realize this is not normal. It's presented to them as normal, so they think it's normal and they think, their parents, as usual, are backward and dumb and they're not with it and they're not plugged into the latest ideas. So that would be my concern. But, but again, on the other hand, a lot of young people entertain a lot of crazy ideas and they age out of them. So we'll see. Yeah, we have one of the experts in the film, Dr. Oz Hakim, who's a psychiatrist in England. And he speaks to this is not a disorder. It's a new subculture. It used to be yeah. punk rockers and goth and all the different things, you know, when I was a kid, we used to see how many people we could shut in a Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, whatever we could do to rebel against our parents. The problem that I see with today's rebellion is that these are seriously impacting people's short and long-term health. Whether you decide to put 15 earrings in your ears and tattoo your body, it's not going to impact your lifelong health or your ability to have children, or your ability to have a romantic relationship with your spouse should you, you know, go on and get married. This kind of rebellion is serious in that, and in, in, in involves collusion with the medical professionals. Again, I'm sorry I can't distinguish between the different people in the film in my blurred memory, but I know one of them pointed specifically to the internet 
but the internet as a, as a general phenomenon, not a particular wing of the internet, not particular types of internet content, but that the internet itself, because it wends its way into every nook and cranny of society all over the world, was the instrument by which these crazy ideas suddenly became universal. And that's a hard thing for me to take. Because, I mean, I, I think that is correct because 10, 12 years ago, I thought of the internet as the most liberating technology in world history, that it allowed people with dissident voices to get their word out despite the traditional media gatekeepers. I thought that was great. Everybody gets a voice. And I still think that's great. I still think there's, you know, I wouldn't be able to have this show without it. So that's great. But on the other hand, I really do feel like it's been a double-edged sword because on the one hand, it can give voice to a lot of people we've never heard from. But on the other hand, it can encourage a lot of groupthink very quickly and it can encourage a lot of bad ideas very quickly. Yeah, and I think for us, we're mature adults, so we know when we enter into a site, we go, oh, no, no, this, I don't mean to be here when I'm Google searching how to find a, play a new guitar song or something. But these are, one, this powerful tool, the internet is in the hands of children. I mean, one of the dads in the film talks about the first time ever his son had a laptop was during the COVID lockdowns. And so he's hobbling along in his bedroom with a laptop that's been issued to him by the school. And they would wake up in the night and he was on that internet all night long and wasn't sleeping. So they had to turn off their internet at night. There's all these dark groups. You know, one of the experts in the film talks about the online grooming. These are lonely children. These are troubled children. They go online, they find their friends, they find these communities, and they don't know who's on the other side of that computer screen. They think it's, you know, Billy, who's 14 and likes to play video games too, when in fact it might be a 50-year-old man who is targeting and searching online to groom these young children. So I think the advice I always give parents is get your kids off the internet. Monitor their screen time. Get them outside. Play outside. Find real friends in your community so that you don't have to find friends on Reddit or Tumblr or TikTok. You feature somebody named, I think it's Graham Linneman. Yeah. Can you say something about what happened to him and why he's in this film? Yeah. Well, I followed Graham for years because I raised a young boy who used to like the TV show that Graham wrote called The IT Crowd, which is a British comic sitcom. And Graham figured out soon early on that, you know, I'm sorry, a man can't be a woman. And he started speaking out and he got canceled. I mean, he was, you know, award-winning screen writer. He's an award-winning comedian. He's an author. And he couldn't work because he would not tell the party line that a man can become a woman and a woman can become a man. And so for that reason, he lost everything. He lost his marriage crumble. He lost all sorts of work that, he needs to pay his bills and support his children. And I think part of the reason we included him is because it just shows the wrath that is thrown at you and that the opposition will not rest until they have destroyed your life. I mean, that's how vicious it is. And so for people that are brave enough to speak out, we only hope that courage begets courage. And you're finding that more and more. We've had quite a few whistleblowers in the United States now that have come out, that have worked inside these gender clinics, particularly working with youth, who they've seen as deeply troubled youth that are medicalized and put on this rushed fast track to transgender transitioning. So, you know, it's just between the stories 
the whistleblowers, the people that are finally getting more and more emboldened to speak out. I think we're going to, this is always a culture war that I say, I will see one in my lifetime. I don't know about all the other culture wars that we're always fighting, but I think we will see this come to an end sooner versus later. And mostly that's because of the physical destruction of people's bodies. Well, I think the most compelling testimonies come from precisely the kinds of people you feature in this film, because you and I can talk all day long about the harms of this, but people who have been through it. Now, at the same time, you were talking about the kind of the hatred and the desire to crush opponents. That seems also to extend to people who are sometimes referred to as detransitioners, because these are like the heretics of the religion. Have you seen that? Have you found that to be the case? It absolutely is, which gets me back to how do we find the people for our films? Because so many, there are so many more detransitioners that we don't even know about. Because they see, they're watching, and they're going, no, I just want to go back and just try to pick up the pieces and live my life. Yeah. And when we made the Detransition Diaries film, which featured women, when we were getting ready to make that film, Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes had a, a large segment on transgender health here in the United States. And it was mostly rah, 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 cheerleaders for the transgender movement. And she had, I think, five, kind of in a group interview, five detransitioners. And 60 Minutes got so much backlash for how dare you include their stories in your segment when she was trying to be what we call fair and balanced, I guess. Right. But yeah, they're not role models. They're not cheerleaders for the campaign. They're told, well, you really weren't trans anyway. You're just so messed up that you did all this to your body and you really weren't trans anyway. And you're just trying to make it so everybody else can get the health care that they need so desperately. So it's really, it takes a toll on them, those that are willing to be bold and out in the public. And many of them go to hearing after hearing across the United States and testify and meet with legislators and talk to the media. You know, they're not making any money doing this. This is not a paid work. They're called grifters all the time. Yeah. by the trans enthusiasts. Like, who are they grifting from? Yeah, I mean, it's just, for heaven's sake, you people ruined my life, and I'm just trying to tell people about it. If I wanted to make money, I can think of a zillion better ways to do it than that. Yeah. yeah. Hey, everybody, Old Woods here to remind you about a very, very important purchase that's going to cost you way less than you think, but that you got to grab quickly because it gets more expensive as you get older. And I'm talking, of course, about life insurance, which gives you tremendous peace of mind and gives your family the safety net it needs in case anything should happen to you. And Policy Genius is going to help you do that. I personally have tremendous peace of mind because my family is fully provided for by my life insurance policy. And it's way less expensive than you think. I remember thinking, a million dollars in coverage? What in heaven's name is that going to cost me? But with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. And don't necessarily rely on that policy you have at work because it might not be enough to meet your family's needs and it might not travel with you if you change jobs. And remember, the licensed award-winning agents at Policy Genius don't work for the insurance companies, so they have no incentive to recommend one company over another. They just want to get you the best policy at the best price. And no wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Save time and money and give your family a financial safety net with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com 
or click the link in the description or on the show notes page to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. So I personally think this is one of the most important issues that, I mean, almost what could be more important than this? And I run into people all the time who think, ah, you know, this doesn't affect you. It affects other people, but it, it could potentially affect everybody. It invades families and then families get pitted against each other because half the family thinks this is the exploitation of a confused kid. And so I wonder, do you think what's behind all this, is it really people who are genuinely showing care for the well-being of children who are younger people who might otherwise commit suicide if they don't make this transition and if you don't use their pronouns and so on? I mean, do you think that it's possible that some people are genuinely of goodwill and they think they're saving lives this way? And at the same time, do you think it's possible that there's some kind of sinister agenda behind this? And if so, what is it? Well, to both of your questions, I'd say yes. Yes, I think there's people that are terribly deluded and think that they're honestly doing things that will help people that are in distress. I do think that there's something very sinister. When you look behind the history of, again, you know, I don't want to be pimping my book here, shilling my book here. No, but, I want um, you to. I insist you shill your book. <laughs> you know, we talk about the early actors in this, and these were bad. I mean, when you look at, Alf, you know, Kinsey, Alfred Kinsey at John Hopkins, he was all about this nastiness with sexuality, perversion. John Money, who did the horrible research on the two twins from Canada, the Weimar twins, that where he used them as a social experiment in that one of the twins, when he was having a routine circumcision as a young boy, as a you know a baby, it was botched. So he lost his male genitalia. And so Money at Johns Hopkins decided, well, we're just going to raise this little boy as if he was a girl. And he did horrible things to these two young boys at prestigious John Hopkins. Harry Benjamin, who was the founder of what's now called the WPATH, which is the professional organization that sends all these directives down for how doctors are going to practice and how they're going to take care of transgender youth. These are bad actors. These are perverts. These are people that want to destroy natural families. You know, the uniqueness and the wonderfulness of, you know, we are created male and we are created female. And they want nothing more than to get our children. Why do you think part of this transgender thing is also being morphed into drag queen story hour. What happened to, you just go to the library and some nice little old lady librarian reads you Mother Goose stories. Now now we have full-on men in drag reading to children. The whole minor attracted person. We're now embracing pedophilia. We're saying that pedophilia is a new sexual identity. Instead of, no, that's a perversion. People that do that or think that way need to be far and far away from children, if not locked up. So that is sinister. You look in the White House. We have men in full-blown women wear, women's face, you know, working for the president of the United States in the name of equality. You have men that have just destroyed women's sports. You have men in my state, California, we have over 200 men who are housed in women's prisons. I don't think that's not anything other than sinister or evil. I thought it was very revealing when, again, one of the young men in the documentary said that 
as he went about trying to live his life as a woman, he realized that there are a lot of subtleties about being a woman, like how you interact with other women. You come to know that over the course of your life, whereas he felt like a fish out of water. I didn't know how to do it. It didn't come naturally to him. And so he would have to fight against all his male instincts for the rest of his life. And he thought, well, why would I do that? I mean, really, it would be, it would, I mean, honestly, it would be like moving to Mars. And Mars, yeah, I suppose I could walk around in a spacesuit all day, but the planet is completely at odds with my existence, right? Why don't I just live on Earth? Like, wouldn't this be far yeah. simpler? And yeah. so just these little subtleties, right? You can't, I can't live this way because being a woman is more than putting on high heels and clownish makeup and dancing around in a ballerina outfit, which is how some of these celebrity transgender people portray it in the most caricatured, insulting way possible. Yeah, and the person you're referring to is Nick. His story actually is in expanded format in book because when Ignatius Press found out we were in production making The Lost Boys, they asked us to include two stories in the book that featured men, not just women. And we intentionally included Nick's one because he's U.S.-based, but he also had a reversion back to his Catholic faith, which was part of his waking up to this lie that he was thinking he could live. But he's, you know, he's a wonderful young man and so happy to see that he's doing well. But yeah, you're right. I mean, Caitlyn Jenner ran for governor out here in my state. It's like, come on. Everybody looks at you. And that's why they want to block puberty. That's why they want to start these kids on an early, early track. Because if you, it's all about passing. And if you can block kids' puberty, then they're not going to grow up and have Adam's apples and spatial hair and bone structures that are more masculine versus feminine. And when you look at what adults who transition, and again, I don't believe you can transition, but just for clarity of what I'm saying, men and women have facial masculinization or feminization surgeries. Nick in the film was thinking about having his Adam's apple shaved out. Even though he was wearing dresses and makeup and had long hair, he still had an Adam's apple. Brian in the film had total electrolysis to remove all of his body hair so he didn't look like a man because he had hairy lights and heavy beard. But if they can block kids' puberty, this is the perversion. If they can block this before kids develop male and female characteristic, they will pass better. Let me ask your opinion of this. Do you believe there is such a thing as gender dysphoria? And if there is, what is the appropriate response to it? Well, what I'll say is, you know, there's a lot on the internet where people fight back and forth and say, don't say gender dysphoria. It's just a new concept. We've just made it up. It's not really true. You know, for me, it's, I would say body dysmorphia. People that are uncomfortable in their body. Everybody has a little bit of that. Oh, I feel chubby. I'm gaining weight. I'm getting older. My wrinkles. We obsess in modern culture with our looks. So yes, there is this thing called body dysmorphia. And most of us have some of it, a little bit of it. You know, we look in the mirror and go, oh, God, 20 years ago, I looked so much better. But not to the point where we're so uncomfortable that we ruminate and we obsess over to the point where we, it's like the anorexic. There might be people that just are constantly dieting. They're trying to keep their weight in their control versus it's so extreme that you're starving yourself to death to the point where your health is in danger. So yes, I do think that it's a real phenomenon, but again, it's a mental health issue. It's how can we make you feel at peace and comfortable within your own body that you've been given? 
So we've been talking primarily about The Lost Boys, which is your documentary film that I'm going to link to, as I say, in the description and on the show notes page. But you also have a book that is mostly about women, and that is the, the brand new book, The Detransition Diaries. Yeah. And I presume there's a lot of commonality between the male and female stories, but at the same time, there have to be unique elements to the female side of this. And what do you find those to be? Well, one of the things that we learned, and that's in the literature, it's the social contagion idea. They, they talk about being a social contagion. And girls are much more social creatures. So girls travel in pack. And if Debbie and Susie are doing this, then Linda and Mary are going to do it too, because we're more influenced as girls, which is why you see more instances of girls having eating disorders or girls involved in self-harm, like cutting. So, and not to say that men don't have those struggles too, but girls are much more social. So it's much more of like, they call it a social contagion. Well, if everybody else is doing this, I want to be popular. I want to have friends at school. I don't want to sit alone at lunchtime. I want to get invited to the birthday parties. I'll do what everybody else does. And so it's more of an acceptance. And then what we talk about in that film too, you know, this is a privileged phenomenon. You're not seeing low-income impoverished children, especially if they're about countries that are gender confused. So there's a lot of messages that young people hear about privilege today. And one of the young girls in the film, she was white. She was from an upper middle class educated home or mother was a physician, and she was the oppressor. So she changed her pronouns, and all of a sudden she got more social credit. And then she identified as non-binary, and she got more social credit. Then she came out as trans, and she got more social credit. So she was no longer the cis, white, privileged oppressor girl. She had acceptance. She had social credit. And there's no doubt that a lot of this, especially for people who might be on the fence, pushes them over the fence. Because especially when you're young, nobody wants to be on the outs. People would much, much prefer to be the chic, edgy, let's face it, fashionable. Yeah. I mean, this is, if this isn't fashionable, what is? I mean, if this were something, let's say, that were harshly demonized, I highly doubt people would say, well, my urge to change gender overcomes that. It's in part because all of society cheers for you and congratulates you. But then if you change your mind, it's like you don't even exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They throw parties when you come out as transgender. You're all, you're, you go from a nobody. Again, a lot of these children have, or young people have other comorbidities. They have some kind of depression. They're on the autism spectrum. They're, they've had some kind of trauma in their past. They, you know, most of the studies show that a lot of these children have three or four other comorbidities. So they're already feeling like I don't fit in. But if this immediately puts me into the cool kid camp, they're like, wow, they have friends for the first time and they don't feel so isolated. And, you know, young people today have, and I think it's throughout time, there's always challenges through adolescence. It's called adolescence and people kind of go, oh, I remember it was hard. You know, you're awkward. Your voice is changing. Your body's changing. Acne. You go from a quirky little goofy kid to this awkward person. So it's already kind of an awkward time anyway, that's just compounded with this looming trans narrative. You know, they just go on social media and that's all they see. Oh, you must be born in the wrong body. This will solve all your problems. Yeah. And, but it, they will say, as I say, as a final note, they'll say, 
these detransitioners seem to be such a small number because for the most part, people are happy with the surgery. They go on and lead very happy lives. And so you're cherry picking the malcontents and you're amplifying their stories and thereby giving a distorted picture. I'm sure you've heard that. Yeah, we don't have data that proves that, that all these people are truly, really happy. I mean, there's lots of people that say it did solve all the problems and they're living their best life now or they're living their true self life now. But it gets back to what is the role of medicine? And this, to me, medicine should never be treating people that have this kind of body image dysmorphia medically and surgically like this. And one ha- we have no guarantee. All the five young men in this film thought that I feel this way. It's awful to feel this way. I'm told if I do this, I'll feel better. And it didn't work. So there's no guarantee. It's like the smoker who you say, you know, it's risky. He goes, no, I'll take the chances. And then, you know, lo and behold, he never gets lung cancer. But you don't say, oh, okay, everybody, it's okay to smoke. Maybe you won't get lung cancer. But it just gets me back to what's the proper role of medicine. And this is not medicine. This is butchery. Well, the documentary we've been talking about is The Lost Boys and the book, which just came out, so I can't not mention it, The Detransition Diaries. I'll make sure these are both linked at tomwoods.com slash 2454, as well as in the video description. Well, Jennifer Lyle, thanks so much for your time today and for your efforts, which are much appreciated. Thank you, Tom. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.